Catholic commentary. Spiritual warfare. Stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Jesus 911. Soul Patrol, Jesus 911, two man car, Jess Romero, Paul Clay. I just want to congratulate all the Catholic men around the country. There was, there was these Catholic men rosary rallies around the United States in different parts. You had hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands of men, Catholic men that went out to different parts of the, of the U.S. and uh, were involved in these rosary rallies. And I'm going to tell you, historically, you'll see in the last uh, thousand years, a lot of things change. Wars are stopped. Natural disasters uh, cease to, to, to happen when men take to the streets with the rosary and do public rosary processions. So I just want to congratulate the thousands of Catholics men around the country who were involved this weekend in these rosary rallies that seem to be ongoing. Paul, we got a lot of two, two good topics today. Uh, we want to talk about moral theology. Then we also want to talk about the psychology of how uh, a baptized Roman Catholic Christian becomes a, a gang member. And mm. that's really, you know, that's really a Southwest problem. Since uh, most people in the Southwest, most Catholics in the Southwest, at least were historically Catholic. Yes, that's uh, those are great topics, and it's it's interesting to see how those two ideas actually uh, play into one another. Jess, yeah, well, let's let's get right into it. There's a good article from the National Catholic Register. These guys are the good guys. It's called "Understanding Pope Francis." It's the moral theology stupid. That's the name of the the, the, the article. And so <clears throat> the commentary here says something seriously serious does seem to be afoot with this papacy that differs markedly from its predecessors, you think? Hmm. And that something is a revolutionary change in moral theology. Yeah, the cat's out of the bag, Paul. Everybody's seen that it's as plain as the nose in our face. And, and this is why we're speaking out about it, because we're concerned. Yes. Yeah, so it says, in 1992 with America, in the midst of a recession, then-candidate for president Bill Clinton had a simple message. It's the economy, stupid. Paraphrasing a bit, I would say something similar with regard to the enigma that is Pope Francis. It's the moral theology, stupid. And I say that he's an enigma because the common narrative with regard to him seems to be that he's a liberal. And yet he's not given the liberal wing of the church any of their most cherished goals. He has not ended mandatory celibacy or dating women to the priesthood or the diaconate, changed the church's teaching on human sexuality, opened Eucharistic reception to Protestants as a matter of official canon law, or even granted carte blanche permission for the divorce and civilly remarried to receive communion. And yet, something serious does seem to be afoot with this papacy that defers markedly from his predecessors, and that's differs, yeah. I think is, and that's something I think is a revolutionary change in moral theology. Paul, can you hear me? Yes, got it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Go ahead. He, he says he says it's, it is my claim. Yeah, it is my claim that Pope Francis seems favorably disposed to a form of moral theology <clears throat> that has been commonly referred to as proportionalism or consequentialism. At the very least, I think Pope Francis sees in proportionalism a kind of corrective counterweight to what he considers 
to be an overemphasis in the church on natural law, moral reasoning, with its central focus on certain moral objects as intrinsically evil. Proportionalism denies that there are any intrinsically evil acts and that the morality of an act can be judged in the light of its outcomes or consequences. Uh, Jess, you want to comment on this before we get even deeper into this? Yeah. In other words, this is this is this is one of the twin daughters of moral relativism, mm-hmm. where where you'll have the the modernists in the church, they'll say that something is it can only be evil. You have to see this the environment, the surroundings, everything. Uh, uh, you got to take all things into consideration, and, uh, and and consider the person where they're at in life, uh, and so the modernists will make all kinds of excuses mm-hmm. to justify mortal sin and sinful behavior, you know, based on the fact that well, again, the person, you know, uh, we got we got to meet him where he's at. Uh, so we, yeah. So so Jess, what you're saying is essentially it's just basically moral relativism yeah yeah. uh that uh, you know uh what might be moral for one person might not be so moral for another person and so you have to look at each individual and weigh out his circumstances and to make that determination correct now i now i know when we look at things like understanding what is mortal sin you need you know those three elements one of them being full knowledge yeah but this is different than just looking at mortal sin in the sense that um, there are things in the world that are intrinsically evil. Abortion being one of them. Would you not agree to that, Jess? Yeah, even even you don't you don't even have to go to the Bible for that. You just know that by yeah. natural law that killing right. an innocent, intentionally killing an, an innocent human being, is is evil. You 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 know that by natural law. You don't yeah. ever have to pick up a Bible or a catechism or go to church service to know that. That's right. And again, proportionalism tries to make excuses for people uh, that uh, that again uh, commit grave offenses. They just try to basically uh, make make a pretext or excuses for uh, for their behavior. And once yeah. again, even in a court of law, a judge will tell you the famous phrase of judges is. Uh, is ignorance of the law is no excuse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, in indeed. One year in jail, yeah. two years in and, prison. Yeah. That, and then that's un- a common refrain from judges. Yes. And then understanding that when we sin, we offend a holy God. And that's what we're not, you know, fully coming to an understanding that sin and immorality offend God. And so there can be no compromise when it comes to such things. But continuing with the article, Catholic proportionalists do not deny that there are indeed foundational moral principles, which is how it differs from a straight up and unvarnished uh, uh, utilitarianism. Yeah. Yeah. But that in the light of rational uh, adjudication, of potential likely outcomes, a moral principle can be denied as applicable in a particular instance if there is a uh, proportionate reason for doing so. Go ahead, Jess, pick it up. This form of moral theology was very influential in the post-conciliar era 
and gained further strength among those who vociferously dissented from Humanae Vitae, the document on birth control. Those of us who lived through these debates know well how divisive they were, and certain moral theologians uh, who defended the, the church's traditional natural law theology, for example, Germaine Grisez, Dr. Janet Smith, they, hated, they paid a heavy professional price for their stance. Yeah. So what is my evidence that Pope Francis favors proportionalism, even though he has never explicitly said so? Well, for starters, he, in 2017, he stated that the proportionalist moral theologian Bernard Herring was a parad- paradigmatic model for how moral theology should be renewed in light of Vatican II. This is the same Bernard Herring who dissented from Humanae Vitae and Veritatis Splendor, it's a document that denounced moral relativism, on key moral issues that went, that went well beyond the contraception question. So why would Pope Francis go out of his way to point to Bernard Herring as a model for moral theology, knowing full well that Bernard Herring had strongly dissented from the teachings of Pope Paul VI's uh, document on contraception and John Paul II's document on moral relativism? In my opinion, the reason is quite clear, namely that Pope Francis, even if he disagreed with, with Bernard Herring's dissent, favors the, the moral theological model that Bernard Herring represents. The only other option is to claim that Pope Francis was ignorant of what Herring uh, really represented, which I find highly unlikely indeed, and not, to point to, and not to point to find a point on it. Of all the moral theologians Pope Francis could have helped us as models, uh, for example, someone like Survey Binkayers, he chose a proportionalist instead. I think that's that's significant. I think it means something. Mm-hmm. Second, Pope Francis seems to embrace a form of moral reasoning closely allied with proportionalism that says that in the concrete circumstances of life, circumstances which are often complex, difficult, and messy, a person's ability to live the objective moral law might be so limited that he or she may be indeed that he or she may indeed be inculpable for any moral guilt and may in fact be doing what God wills for them in his or her concrete existence, despite what the objective moral norm teaches. Well, this is dangerous ground here. Yes, it is. Very dangerous. In other words, the moral principle in question is affirmed, but it may be set aside in certain complex cases that present us with a proportionate reason for doing so. This is different from culpable ignorance, of the principle in question, since the principle is known and affirmed, but is just set aside in this instance. We're going to have to pick it up with the next yeah. uh, uh, one more segment on this because this is this is very meaty, and we oh, have a lot to say about this. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, uh, I'm amazed as you, as you read through this article. Uh, can you imagine what the implications are behind this type of theology when you embrace this theology? Essentially, what it says to me is you can justify anything at any particular point in time. Yeah. Then I'll tell you what it's going to justify. The whole LGBT uh, cabal, the whole homosexual movement uh, into the church, uh, yes. seeing them as civil unions, maybe blessing them. This is where it's all going to lead to. The, uh, the open, you know, the open use of contraception in the Catholic Church. Uh, yeah, this is dangerous, dangerous ground we're on. We'll be right back. We're going to continue talking about the dangers of proportionalism. Stick around. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency... 
Dial 888-526-2151. Stole Patrol Jesus 911, St. Anthony Mary Claret, pray for us. It's this feast day today. We're talking about <clears throat> moral theology. There's a great article put out by the National Catholic Register, which kind of looks at Pope Francis and his uh, <clears throat> those around him. Those are the people that he he uh, appoints to, to offices around him and that consult with him. And they seem to be what's called proportionalist. Here's what the author says, a very well written article. It's on the National Catholic Register. He says, and in so adjudicating the circumstances as limiting and mitigating, we can then affirm with a a secure conscience that we are in fact doing God's will, despite the violation of the principle in question. For example, in Amoris Laetitia chapter 8, Pope Francis makes the following statement in in, a in uh, paragraph 303 or footnote 303, he says, yet conscience can do no more than recognize that a given situation does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. It can also recognize with sincerity and honesty what for now is the most generous response which can be given to God and come to see with a certain moral security that it is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexity of one's limits while not yet fully the objective ideal. In other words, words, some people are just too stupid to recognize sin. Uh, They're too ignorant. They're too unenlightened to recognize sin. So we have to move the lines a little bit for them. Move the line back a little (laughs) bit. Just follow them, you know, meet them where they're at and just keep them there. And, uh, you know, obviously they're not hitting the objective ideal because they they have limits in their complexity of understanding. Uh, Paul, all, none of this comports with the Word of God, uh, and, and that's why the Catholic Church says, and the Church has taught for well over a thousand years, that at the age of seven, that's the age of reason. At the age of seven, that's why they, they kids make their first Holy Communion and their first confession at the age of seven, because the Church teaches Saint Thomas Aquinas and others that that's when a a, a, a child knows what's right from wrong yes and absolutely just in the book of romans clearly says they are without excuse there is no excuse you know uh god has clearly revealed these things even through natural law yeah i just read an article recently from a psychology today magazine and psychology today uh, said this this article is about 10 years old it said uh, children know right from wrong at the age of seven. And it was funny, mm. the psychologist, he says, I'm not Catholic, but the Catholic, the Catholics have been saying this for about a thousand years. So mm. psychology right now is saying uh, that a child at the age of about seven knows what's right and wrong clearly. And this, uh, and this article says, oh yeah, the Catholics, by the way, P.S., they've been saying this for well over a thousand years. They were way ahead yes. of us. <laughs> yes. Let's hit it. Go ahead. I'll pick it up. This, it seems to me, is a clear endorsement of a more proportionalist understanding of moral theology, pastoral mercy, and a gradualist approach. I want to say that again, a gradualist approach to bringing people to the fullness of the truth is all well and good. And Pope Francis rightly endorses such a law of gradualness. Yeah, there are applications for it. But but to go further and say that circumstances might turn an objectively immoral act into God's will for my life right now, and to be able to say so with a secure conscience is quite another matter. This stands in stark contrast with the words of 
Pope St. John Paul in Familiaris Consortio. They cannot, this is his quote, they cannot, however, look on the law as merely an ideal to be achieved in the future. They must consider it as a command of Christ, the Lord, to overcome difficulties with constancy. And so, what is known as the law of gradualness or step-by-step advance cannot be identified with gradualness of the law as if there were different degrees or forms of precept in God's laws for different individuals and situations. Wow. Yes, yes. Uh, Thank you, St. Pope John Paul II. Continue, Jess. Third, one must consider the significance of the Pope's demolition uh, this is Pope Francis's demolition of the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family Life in Rome. Ad- academic due process was violated <clears throat> in extreme ways, as the professors of, at the institute were just these are these are the, the the good professors, the orthodox professors were just summarily fired for clearly ideological reasons. These professors were all supporters of Veritatis Splendor and the Church's tradition of natural law, moral reasoning. They were replaced by Pope Francis, this proportionalist professors, some of whom are on record stating that the Church's teaching on contraception and homosexuality should be looked at again in light of the contemporary insights and circumstances. Furthermore, the Institute's new focus is no longer Veritatis Splendor, uh, <clears throat> which means the splendor of the truth, but Amoris Laetitiae, with the latter interpreted as an opening to a fresh look at certain questionable teachings of the church. Space precludes that I go into all the details, and many before me have already done so admirably anyway. Yes. Here's what you can see. When you put the writings, the clear writings on moral theology of Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, by the way, both of those popes, were known for for their very high IQ and uh, intellect. They had Pope John Paul II had two earned PhDs. Pope Francis, uh, Pope Benedict has four earned PhDs. They were both known as intellectual academic popes. When you put their writings on moral theology and you put them side by side with Pope Francis, they're saying the opposite thing. Yes, yes. Uh, this you know again. Uh, from Rome, we're supposed to have clarity, Jess. And right here, he, he talks about uh, questionable teachings of the church. There are no questionable teachings of the church, Jess, because the Holy Spirit, pro- uh, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would guide the church in all truth. Amen. And we're talking, and we're talking about the tradition with a capital T, the tr- apostolic tradition. These are not questionable; they are God, God's truth. And guess what? At last, I heard God is immutable, Jess. Uh, th- with Him, there's no shifting nor shadow of change. With him from everlasting to everlasting, he's God. Amen. Let's uh, finish up this article. It says, finally, as I'm fond of saying at every turn, personnel is policy. And when one looks at the high-level Episcopal appointments Francis has made, especially in the United States and Europe, one sees a clear pattern emerging as to the kind of prelate Pope Francis prefers. That might differ widely in tone and temper, and they may not all share the same theological opinions on all matters. But they all have one thing in common, and that is an adherence to a form of pastoral accompaniment that clearly implies for those with eyes to see a form of proportionalist moral reasoning. Along these lines, many conservative Catholics groaned 
in despair over the red hat that was awarded to Bishop Robert McElroy of San Diego. I do not know Bishop, now Cardinal-designate McElroy personally. I will pray for him truly since he is now one of the leading lights in the American Episcopacy, and I wish him well. But what does catch my eye, and which should catch the eyes of all, is that this is just one more example, one more confirmation of what it is I am of what it is I'm talking about. And that is that the most significant thing about this current papacy is the revolution in moral theology it seems to be embracing. Therefore, instead of wringing our hands in despair over this or that aspect of ecclesial politics, we need to attend to the theology because it's the, the it's the moral theology stupid. Mm-hmm. Article written by Larry Chapa. He's a he's a professor at Fordham, Fordham University. He's been there for twenty years. Uh, <clears throat> Paul, I'll tell you why this is happening. I'll make it very just make it simple. Uh, Pope Francis, I'm saying this just respectfully, but I'm just saying it factually. He's a Jesuit. The Jesuits have been in, in the last hundred years, or maybe even longer. The the Jesuits have embraced theological liberalism and modernism, and so Pope Francis is training as a priest, a deacon, priest, bishop, pope. It's all been from the lenses of theological modernism, uh, mm-hmm. what they call liberation theology. And so this is what he's bringing to the papacy. This is all he knows. Again, he's been taught that uh, that the, the the pre-1965 Catholic theology somehow, you know, it's like the boogeyman. It's, it's bad. I mean, it's dangerous. We've got to get away from it. And now that he's got he's got the total reins of power, he figures it's my, it's my job to stick the nail in the coffin and put all things pre-1965 in a coffin where they belong. He's, yeah. he's somebody who's bought he's somebody who's bought definitely into what's called the spirit of Vatican II. Yeah. There's going to be a new Pentecost. There's going to be a great springtime in the church. Guess what, Paul? That's been 60 years since Vatican II. The springtime's never 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 arrived. Yeah, yeah, and Jess. I'll just, you know, let's expand it a little and call it the spirit of the world, because that's exactly what it is. It is a merging between an attempt to merge the truth of God with the uh, ideology of the world. And guess what? The last I checked, Jess, sacred scripture tells us that the enemies of the Christian are threefold, the world, the flesh and the devil. Okay, so 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 there is no way you can reconcile a worldview or the zeitgeist uh, of uh, of the world with the truth of God. Amen. Jesus nine one one two man car. Jess Romero, Paul Clay. Once again, uh, how do we how do how do we know what the church teaches? The church, the the faith has been given to us. And it ceased at the death of the last apostle. When John the Apostle died, the, the divine revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ closed with the death of the last apostle. That's why Jude chapter 1 verse 3, St. Jude says, in the first century, he says, contend for the faith. That's, that's a word that it's, 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 a, it's a legal word that means like a lawyer does in court, argue for the faith, uh, defend it verbally. Contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. St. Jude the Apostle tells us that the apostolic faith was delivered, not piecemeal, yes. not, not in sections, yes. but it was delivered once and for all to the Preach saints. It, brother. He's talking about the saints in the first century with the death of John, divine revelation, special revelation closed. Now, throughout the course of time, we try to understand it with more clarity and with yes. deeper insight, but it doesn't change. And yes. what we're seeing, 
what we're seeing, unfortunately, with Pope Francis and the people that he surrounded himself with, what we're seeing is not trying to understand the deposit of faith and give us more, more moral clarity, but we're seeing a break with tradition, a break with doctrinal tradition. We're not seeing a continuation, a continued understanding, a full no. understanding of, of doctrinal tradition. Right. We're seeing, Paul, a complete break. That's right. And that complete break, Jess, let's carry it out further. It ends up being a break with God. Okay, that's what happens because it brings us into mortal sin. It brings us into the practice. And, you know, uh, you know, it's one thing to commit mortal sin and it's another thing to institutionalize it as the norm. Mm. Yes. And that's that's what we're seeing right now. This is uh, this is dangerous uh, again because he's the pop of the church. Yes. Yes. Again, pray, pray, pray. Yeah, based upon your office, all of us are going to be, based upon our office, held to a higher responsibility. All I could say is uh, St. Saint, Saint, uh, Anthony Mary of Claret, pray for the Pope. Virgin Most Powerful, pray for the Pope. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons, pray for the Pope. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about why Hispanic Catholics become gang members. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888-526-2151. Soul Patrol, Jesus, uh, all right, Jess, let's call. just dig right into this. All right. Uh, I want to ask you a question. What do you think is lacking in our neighborhoods when it comes to gangs? Paul, in, uh, I think both of us are experts on gangs. Both of us have worked around gangs in, in custody and in patrol. We've lived around them all our life. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have an experiential knowledge of it. And also because of our faith, I think uh, we have an acute awareness of good and evil. Yes. Uh, to me, to me, the gang member, Hispanic, Asian, white, black, what they are, I'm going to use a term that John Paul II used. He calls them baptized non-believers. Baptized. In other words, they've been baptized. Let's just talk about Hispanic gangs here because we're living in the Southwest and the, the there's... This is this a Mexican stronghold here, mm-hmm. the Southwest. I would just say that the Mexican American Paul is a, a, most of them are baptized non-believers, which means that they're ignorant of Christ and His gospel. That's an, yes. that, that, fa- that that phrase is found in paragraph seventeen ninety two of the Catechism, which makes them these young men. It makes them powerless against the threefold strategy of the devil, which, as you well know, in First John two fifteen. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Mm-hmm. So the gang member, because they don't love Jesus, they haven't been taught to love him. They fall in love with this fallen world. And since the gang member, their conscience is not properly formed according to the word of God, the gang member becomes a moral relativist. We were just talking about that the last two segments. Mm-hmm. Moral relativism is the view that ethical standards, morality, and positions of right or wrong are culturally based and therefore subject to a person's individual choice. So in other words, we can all decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. And I think that's in part uh, what a lot of gang members fall into because they don't have a properly formal conscience. Uh, for them, uh, they're, f- they're fuzzy thinkers. When you don't have a properly formal conscience based on the Word of God, here's what happens. is you start basing your personal opinions on your emotions or your feelings or your sentiments. That's why, Paul, you'll hear when we were cops 
and a lot of people get arrested, you'll hear defense lawyers use the argument for their for their defendants in a, in a court of law to say, well, uh, Your Honor, he did this in the heat of passion. In the heat mm-hmm. of passion. What is that? The word passion is a, is a theological word that means emotions. In mm-hmm. other words, you could say he did this because of his emotional out. He followed his emotions, not his intellect. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's what happens to the gang member, Paul. Since they don't have a faith life or a prayer life, they're powerless against the, their own inner temptations, their own mm. inner demons, their external temptations. So they're powerless to regulate their passions and emotions. And they fall into a in, in, into a life just of decadence. Makes perfect sense, and 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 it and it just you know what you just said coincides with sacred scripture, of course, in the sense that uh, the Bible says that uh, naturally speaking, we are slaves to sin. So they are slaves to their lower nature, yes. and without without the ability that supernatural grace that God infuses into us, uh, you know, through the sacraments, through being in a state of grace, they truly are uh, uh, unable to break free from this uh, slavery, per se. They haven't been taught how to break free. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. The second question, Jess, is uh, can you give us any uh, uh, detail or story about how, uh, about the experience with the gang member? Uh, It can be a good or bad ending. Well, both of us have a lot of stories, but I'll just share one. Yeah. Uh, working day shift in, in East LA in a one-man car overtime. I saw a man in an alley. He was lying on the ground. I got a call. That it was a possible possible burglary in progress, daytime burglary. I got off the car. I saw that he uh, he was in a burglary. He was a heroin addict that just injected himself with heroin. Uh, mm. The syringe, the rubber band, and the black tar substance were were right. They were right next to him on top of a rag. Uh, you could tell that he was overdosing, and he told me, as I walked up to him, he told me uh, that he wanted to die. Well, obviously, I called the paramedics on my radio. I waited for about five minutes for them to get to me. I held the, I held the man in my arms and across my lap to try to comfort him. He was, he was, you know, probably about 10 years older than me. And I began to pray for him out loud. Mm. He, he could hear me. I was praying. I was saying, God, I pray that you have mercy on this man. Lord, grant this man forgiveness, Lord. Lord, grant this man peace. Lord, if he's a baptized Catholic, Lord, I just ask you, don't look at his sins, but the faith of his parents. Look at the <laughs> faith of the church. Well, the paramedics, they, they got there about you know in, within about five minutes, uh, and they took the, the gang member from me. Again, he was probably about 10 years older than me. And as they took the gang member into the paramedic's vehicle, he opened one eye and he told me, with slurred speech, he said, thank you for praying for me, deputy. I will never mm. forget this. Uh, I followed the ambulance to the hospital. Uh, uh, I followed the, the, uh, yeah, the ambulance to the hospital, and he was pronounced dead on the, uh, he was pronounced dead at, on the arrival at the hospital. But uh, I'll never forget that, Paul, when that, that look that he gave me. And you could see that all of a sudden his, his heart was quickened by the Holy Spirit. When he looked at me, he says, thank you. Deputy for praying for me. I will mm-hmm. never forget this. Whoa. What you got an a lot act of those of, stories too. You got a lot of those yeah. stories. Yeah. And what an act of love, Jess. An act of love. And you know, you just don't know uh again, you know, would it have been better if you had been a priest and you were able to, you know, uh give him the sacrament right then and there? Of course. But you know what? The the, the good hope that I have is that, you know, God is not bound by the sacraments and you know through through your words you could have given him 
a little bit of moral clarity that at the last second, he could have said, Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me. And you may see him in heaven one day, Jess. Amen. Mm -hmm. You got it. Okay. Yep. Okay. Uh, Third question I have is, uh, what's the typical profile or background of a gang member in your experience and how do they get there? Well, becoming a gang member, we're talking about Hispanic gangs here because I would say that's my specialty. Mm-hmm. It, because I've worked around them all my life. I've lived around them. A lot of my family members are Hispanic gang hey, members. Y- you grew up in San Fer. Come I on I grew now. up in San Fer. Yeah. <laughs> so beco- becoming a gang member doesn't happen in a vacuum. In other words, we're not alone. We're affected by others around us. So the life of a gang member usually starts through a certain deficiency in family relationships, most especially with mom and dad. You'll find, not always, but you'll find that there's either a broken or a divorced household, or an absentee father. Now, if a young boy doesn't bond with his parents, he's going to find no meaning in family life, and he's going to look for love and affirmation in other places. Because because family life, it fills the voids of the world's meaningless and and cruelty, especially for young people. That's where Mm -hmm. they find their security. So the broken family in any society creates a dangerous void. And what happens, there's now an open an opening for criminal and even demon diabolical affliction. A, a toehole for the devil. That's right. St. Paul calls yeah. it a toehole for the devil. Yeah. So it, 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 the enemy, the enemy of our human nature, the devil, he under, he's understood that, that the truth and the good, that holy families are the best rampart uh, to, to give us constructive, well-formed human beings that live a life of virtue. And this is why, again, the devil does anything he can to just try to destroy family life. Mm-hmm. You'll find with family life has destroyed these young Latino guys, they'll gravitate towards a strong leader in the neighborhood because gang members, they have an empty void in their heart, just like everybody else does. Yeah. They have an empty void, Paul, for male yeah. guidance, for and male just- leadership. And children, they long for structure. They long for discipline, right? And so these guys, you know, there's a lot of discipline within a gang, right? Yes, yes. So uh, again, what what they're really yearning for in their heart is a relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't know it. And this is where the Catholics evangelization comes in it's up to us to introduce them to the king of kings and lord of lords because only christ can fulfill that emptiness in their heart yes and so again we know the devil is is the the great counterfeiter and so what he does is uh he takes what god you know gave us you know as we know the family is the domestic church and so when you have a strong family that extends out into a strong community and society and a strong church and this is right. what we're lacking amen yeah okay on the, uh, no, uh, the the fourth question i have for you is uh what's the usual profile of a mother and a father of a gang member what's the, what's their profile the facts are that children from single parent families are more likely to become involved in criminal activity. This is this is just something that's been studied over and over. You can't refute the studies. According to one study that I have here, children raised in a single-parent families are one-third more likely to antisocial behavior. And nearly 20% of juveniles in state reform institutions come from fatherless homes, as do 43% of prison inmates come from fatherless homes. Also, research indicates that there's a direct correlation between crime rates and the number of single parent families in a neighborhood. And so the welfare culture, it tells the man that he's not a necessary part of the family. 
the role of father and breadwinner is supplanted by the welfare check. So boys growing up in mother-only families naturally seek male influences. Unfortunately, in many inner-city neighborhoods, those male role models may not exist. And the typical inner-city is almost a matriarchy. The women receive all the income, dominate the social worker class in most of the schools. Therefore, the boys in search of male guidance and companionship may end up in the company of gangs or other undesirable influences. And so because of the lack of fatherly guidance and protection and male role models, these kids grow up emotionally wounded and afraid of the adversities of life. They look to a gang and a gang leader as a surrogate father who fills that relationship that they never had. You know, just it reminds me of Lord of the Flies, right? You know, where, you know, there are no adults around. And so there's a pecking order, you know, that that Mm -hmm. develops from these uh, uh, immature minds that uh, and that's what you see in the gang mentality. And it's a distorted view of order. And it's, you know, there, there, you know, even though there is there is a form of discipline and structure, it's warped and it is something different than what from what God intended. That's right. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, so, uh, so then, uh, what's appealing about being in a gang? <laughs> I think what's appealing for them, Paul, is their fallen nature, lust for power, lust for money, lust for sex, the pride yeah. of being feared by people. Basically, yeah. uh, this is known as a theology of concupiscence. We'll pick it up. We'll pick it up on the next segment. We'll keep talking about what's appealing about gang members. Why is it that many Latinos here in the Southwest? Uh, fall into the gang lifestyle, and yet they're baptized Roman Catholic Christians. We'll continue talking about this. Jesus 911, stick around. Now, back to Jesus 911. If this call is not an emergency, dial 888 526 21 Five one. So patrol Jesus nine one one two man car Jess Romero Paul Clay Paul what was that last question you asked me? Yeah, uh, uh, what's appealing uh, about being in a gang, Jess? Well, again, I think because all of us have a fallen nature as a result of original sin, it's it's been transmitted to our human nature that it's called concupiscence. This means that all of us have an inclination towards sin and evil. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can regulate that or, or properly harness or master that is through a life of faith, prayer, and the sacraments. Mm-hmm. Gang members aren't, aren't exactly faithful practicing Catholics. Gang members follow their own fallen nature. And you'll find one of the things about gang members that they're territorial. Uh, graffiti is the primary way that, that a gang marks their territory. And the rise in graffiti in a neighborhood demonstrates that the neighborhood is under siege to a particular gang. Uh, These gangs are territorial because they're all trying to control the narcotic trafficking. They're trying to control even the sex trade in their neighborhoods, which is a huge source of income for these street gangs. And with money comes power, pleasure, and prestige amongst their peers. Hmm. It's interesting because I I know that demons also are territorial. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Consistent behavior. Demons, yeah. Completely Mm -hmm. consistent, congruent behavior, yeah. Yeah, so so Jess, most gang members, as you well know, you know, they'll be wearing crosses or you know they have tattoos of uh, the Virgin Mary on their back. Talk about that for a little bit. I think many Hispanic gang members, they're they have a sense of cultural Catholicism, even they don't, even though they don't live or practice or study the Catholic faith, 
something about wearing a cross or a tattoo of our of our Lord or our Lady, uh, for them, they, they put it on their bodies, I would say, for several reasons. Number one, some of them just do it superstitiously. In other mm-hmm. words, you know, they think, well, hey, you know what, it, it kind of affords some protection. So they, they, they'll put on a Christian tattoo or jewelry so they can be protected from their enemies. A second reason that ta- that uh, gang members will put tattoos, uh, sometimes they just want to have this desire to shock and repel people. It, it gives them the sense of the bad boy image, you know. It, it's, it's like fashionable to do so. But to shock people for the thrill of shocking people with no intention to promote the truth and goodness, is, it's not a virtue. It's a mm-hmm. sign of, of it's a sign of a perverted sense of values. Another reason gang members put up, put on these tattoos is for vanity. Vanity. A lot of these guys are young, buffed. They lift weights all day in the prison yard, mm-hmm. and uh, they just want to walk around their t-shirt off. And they have they have have a particular tattoo that's going to draw draw attention to themselves of our Lord or our Lady, and uh, they know that uh, they're going to get people's constant attention. So, you know, as they walk around without their shirt, they are a constant distraction. It detracts from the person, and it focuses attention on on the body's external appearances, especially if you're young and, and well built. Yeah. So in, in other words, a lot of them put on a tattoo, Paul, because it's narcissism. Look at me. Look yeah. at me. Yeah. And 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 to add to that, for other reasons, just I think there's inside uh, some people are conflicted. You know, uh, not not everybody is all evil, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we've been taught certain things, and I, I'm sure most of them have graced the church with their presence at some point in their life, right? And yeah. so, I, I think that you know, and we all have uh, this this deep down uh, love for our own mother, uh, no matter how good or bad the example was. And so I just think that uh, instinctively, you know, um, there's this conflict going on between good and evil in their own life. And, and so some, I think that some of them uh, put those tattoos on for the, for that reason as well. And, you know, that's a good point, Paul, because uh, the fact is they are, they are conflicted because the seeds of the gospel have been shared with them. Maybe, you know, it's been a long time, but at least even those sacramental graces are in the, are in the soul. Most mm-hmm. of them are baptized. A lot of them have been confirmed as well, received their first mm-hmm. Holy Communion. And so St. Paul talks about, he says, he talk, tells Timothy to stir into flame. Uh, you know, uh, he, he says, stir into flame. Uh, uh, what's, what's the uh, Second Timothy chapter 2? Uh, stir into flame the so-and-so that was laid, that was... L- through the laying on of my hands. I'll, I'll find the verse right now. Mm-hmm, but see, mm-hmm. Yeah, stir, stir, the, stir up the graces that you receive through the laying up of my hands. Mm. In other words, Paul, sometimes just putting on a tattoo, this is in their own immature, under, uh, under, maybe even imprudent understanding, this is a way to try to show in some way, shape, or form that they still haven't lost their faith completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, some of us, some of us, people may say it's a sign of immaturity, but the fact is, for some of them, uh, this is this is a way, in some immature way, to try to keep a relationship with God open, to try to keep a relationship with Jesus by putting them on the, on his on their back, on their arms, on their chest, or, or kind of a try to a, a way of keeping Jesus in their heart in some immature way in their way of understanding. Uh, but in other words, 
they're not hopeless atheists. That's the point that I'm making. Yeah, so they're hoping to be a Saint Dismas, right? <laughs> yeah, know. it could at be some... a Saint Dismas moment as they keep looking at their at yeah. the big buff bicep with a, with a tattoo of a crucifix and Jesus there day in and day out in their prison cell. One day, you know, something can happen with that image. God could use that image to bring about the grace of conversion. Yeah, yeah and tell us who Saint Dismas is, Jess. <laughs> the thief on the right that uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Told him this day you will be with me in paradise because he looked at Jesus and he had him he had a moment of contr- he made an act of contrition in his heart uh, he basically examined his conscience and he made a profession of faith what was his profession of faith he said Lord remember me when you enter into your kingdom and our Lord said this day you, he said this day you will be with me in paradise Saint Dismas in that little sentence right there showed that he repented showed that he had contrition of heart. And showed that he had surrendered his 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 intellect will to Jesus Christ at that moment. Obviously, he couldn't he couldn't surrender his life to Jesus, get off the cross, and start following him as a disciple. He's dying on the cross, but mm-hmm. to the extent that he was able to, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ at yes. that moment. Amen. So, so Jess, you mentioned before the problem with identity in your own personal experience. You said that when you visit family in Mexico, you're called names, and in America, also you're called names. Can you elaborate on on that and uh, for the audience? Obviously, this is when you're a kid and growing up, not now. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you'll, find, <laughs> you'll find many Mexican Americans, such as myself, when you're young, okay, a child, a tween, a teenager. We go through an identity crisis as we're growing up, and I'll tell you why because. We're not readily accepted by Mexican nationals from south of the border. I know my family mm-hmm. members; they'll call you names. They they they, they will, and you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, they'll call you half breeds, kind of in a derogatory, insulting manner. And then sometimes in our country, in the U.S., sometimes when I was young, they'd call me a beaner, a wetback by you know Anglo Americans. So many people become affected by this by this societal ping pong. Because you're not accepted totally by the Anglo-Americans as you're a, when you're a kid. I'm not saying now. That's when I was a kid. Or Mexican nationals, your, 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 your family members. But I overcame this several years ago, Paul, when I realized that it doesn't matter what my Mexican national uh, family says south of the border or what some kooky you know, Anglo-Americans uh, uh, say here in this side of the border. I overcame all of this when I realized that I'm a child of God. And Amen. my home is heaven. And the Bible yes. says that God is my father. I'm a citizen of heaven. We're saved by grace, not by race. So Preach when I came it, to understand all that 40 years ago, all that national and race stuff to me, it, 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 it means nothing to me that my skin is darker than most people because the revelation that God is my father and I'm his son, this has brought deep consolation and peace to yes. my soul after yes. all these years of asking myself, how do I fit in when I was a kid? Now, yes. I have a deep love for both Americans and Mexicans who are who are my co-religionists and brothers in Christ. And mm-hmm. this places me in the worldwide family of God. We're both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. We're yes. equal. We all have the same dignity because yes. we're chosen as sons and daughters of God. Glad you brought that up, Jess, because I see that a lot, uh, an impediment to the truth of the Catholic Church. Sometimes, you know, I run into... Uh, whether it be a black American or somebody, you know, and 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 they tend to see things through ethnocentric orientation. Yes. Everything revolves around race. And you know what? Uh, the last I heard, God is spirit. God is a spirit. And so, the, so the the idea of uh, of of uh, trying to uh, you know 
limit God and or you know you hear this a lot in the black community or in Islamic communities oh you worship the you know the white man's God there's no white man's God here you know what I mean uh you know listen we are all brothers uh uh you know in Adam and but the real connection is the second Adam is being brothers in Christ because uh that's where we get the recreation that's when God takes what was lost and he and and he, and he and he forms in us, and he brings us uh, into and, and and forms us and 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 you know just like a a sculpture, he sculptures us into the image of Christ. That's and, right. Uh, yeah, Paul, that's the good stuff. Paul, everybody's citizenship will end at the grave, whether you're a citizen of Canada, you know, Poland, Amen. the U.S., Mexico. But our citizenship in heaven will last forever. And yes. the good news is that salvation is by grace, not by grace. Mm, I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that saying and, and put it in my little, uh, <laughs> my, my war, my war bag. That's right. <laughs> anyway, exactly. Got, got another question for you, Jess, and this will be the last question. Right. Do you think that if these would-be gang members had God in their life, would it make a difference? Yeah, they it would, Paul. I'll tell you why. Because a lot of them have their mission. They're mission minded. Uh, you know, they 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 appeal to you know strength. Only the strong survive. Brotherhood, camaraderie. They kind of have a creed. I've read a lot of the prison gang creeds. A lot of gang members have a creed that they've actually written up. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of these things, Paul, that would make these guys perfect followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, again, it just they're they're just. Uh, and it's because of just their lack of knowledge. My people perish for their lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Once we sit down one-on-one, like you've done many times with people, and I've done, mm-hmm. and you share with them the story of Jesus Christ and the love that Christ has for them and your love for Christ, one-on-one with a man, Paul, you see they melt in our hands. You've seen mm-hmm. I've seen that yes. in years. Yep. Why? And, and and all the stuff that they learned as a gang member, that strength, the survival of the fittest, you know, the, the, the brotherhood, camaraderie, we follow a creed, we watch each other's back. When they come into the Catholic Church, Paul, these gang members become super holy Catholics. Because mm-hmm. there's nothing like following King Jesus, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like following King Leonidas or, or, or King anybody else or King Xerxes. Following King, yeah, because they're both dead. Those guys are dead. Following and King Queen Jesus, Mary. yeah, and Queen—that's that's where it's at. That's the that's the ultimate revelation, Paul. Well, that's uh, thanks a lot for uh, for the Monday show once again, brother. I, I love Mondays. Uh, that, that's a wrap, my brothers and sisters of Christ. Jesus nine one one. Up next, Gary Machuda, hands on apologetics. As for me and Paul Clay, hope you uh, enjoyed the conversation. That's a wrap. EOW, end of watch. God bless you. <laughs>